0: Hello, my name is Gustav Hoyer, and I am a composer. Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. It's my great pleasure to welcome my friend and collaborator, Benjamin Harding. Benjamin Harding is the Dean of the School of Music at Cairn University in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. He's also the Director of Worship Ministries at Riverstone Church in Yardley, Pennsylvania. He's active in teaching and has an active solo piano career as well. He's had years of committed study and practice and he explores music in many genres, as you'll hear. He grew up listening to everything from bluegrass and gospel music to, of course, classical music and we'll talk some more about that today and his passion for the keyboard and for music is definitely going to come through. Uh, Benjamin, I'd like to welcome you to the Anachronism podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me on. Uh, It's my pleasure and uh, we'll talk a little more about our recent collaboration later on in this episode and some of the exciting stuff coming up for you and, and some of the work we've done together. But I love to start with each guest that I have on the show with a question that is very personal for each of us who are in classical music, as you would expect. It's a very human thing. But it is, um, pivots around the moment when you discovered classical music. And just talk to me about your first encounter with the classical genre, with all that music you had in your home. Uh, Tell me about that.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in Dipper Harbor, New Brunswick, Canada, uh, a small fishing community in Atlantic Canada, on the Bay of Fundy. We have the highest tides in the world. Uh, if anybody wants to come up and visit, it's a great place uh, for um, for just the imagination, the imagination to run wild, really. And my grandmother taught us how to play the piano in hopes that we would play hymns in church and be the be the, be the church pianist, uh, Sunday after Sunday. I remember the moment where, uh, after many years of forced practice from my parents, I remember the moment when I became emotionally engaged with playing the piano. I remember the moment it was just before a music festival. Um, that my grandmother would enroll us in every year as as kind of a, a, an opportunity to perform, an opportunity to be adjudicated by uh, uh, an established adjudicator and receive feedback from an established teacher. And I was warming up in her home, and I can't even remember the piece. It was a two-part... I think, and I remember being able to express how I was feeling. I was in about the uh, sixth grade or something like that. It was was, life-changing. It was was life-changing. I loved the music of Korngold. I didn't know who Korngold was but he scored the movie, uh, Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. And I remember sword fighting with my brother, um, and humming that, uh, those amazing tunes, uh, from that movie. So I, I loved listening to classical music on the movies, but that was the first time that I could express what I was feeling, what I was feeling from the depths of my soul, really. Uh, as a sixth grader.
0: A lot of the guests that I have on the show talk about that moment when they first encounter, and, and most of them are performers. A lot of people who have that moment, they realize it's a vehicle for expression. And people on this podcast who encounter it may or may not have encountered classical music before. So pivoting from what was clearly a deep and personal moment when you as a you found your artistic voice and the keyboard was the palette on which you could speak that voice. Uh, Your journey from that moment, what were some of the entry points then into other kinds of classical literature or or other encounters that you had, either as a player or as a listener?
1: Yeah, so um, our school would take um, trips to the, the local... The local town, which is uh, Saint John, New Brunswick, and there was uh, uh, Symphony in New Brunswick. Symphony in New Brunswick would offer these school concerts, and I remember uh, seeing a pianist there by the name of Philip Thompson. And I remember just being captivated uh, by him and how he uh, performed on the instrument. Um. In Canada, uh, Glenn Gould is a hero, was a hero. I think he still is a hero um, in the classical world. And on the CBC, um, I remember watching uh, footage of him performing and talking about music uh, when, I was a, when I was a little kid and remembering being captiv- captivated by that. Um, but as I went into the teenage years... Uh, a special came on the CBC once again. The CBC, Canadian uh, Broadcasting Corporation, wow. fantastic for hockey night in Canada and for <laughs> piano music, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, Vladimir Horowitz came on, and I've never—I never heard of, of this uh, artist before, and he comes on and plays uh, the Chopin Heroic Polonaise. And I was just moved to the core by his playing and, and just by the, the sheer um, heroicism of this piece. Um, it really, really captivated me. And then from my grandmother, I went to uh, Carol O'Neill who happened to be the teacher of Philip Thompson, that pianist that I, I saw at Symphony, New Brunswick. Um, and I, under her, I just uh, began to become more and more aware of the capacity and the excitement that is in uh, piano music um, that I could relate to, feel deeply, uh, engage with, and, and, and build up the tools that I could express how I was feeling during my teenage years. Um, and so that's kind of the journey in my in my young life there, where I was craving uh, to be expressive, and then people would come alongside me and teach me the tools um, uh, in order for me to be expressive.
0: That's wonderful, you had some early support as well from your family to help you explore yes. this. Um, so with all the styles that are out there, because you have a love of other styles, what is it about classical music that has kept your attention and your interest all these years?
1: Um, I was a complex teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an, I'm, I am an, a complex person uh, even now. Uh, I'm, I'm complex. I feel things deeply. And I need the complexity of classical music to express my deepest thoughts, my deepest emotions, and life is life is complex. I mean, it's it's complex, it's complicated, it's uh, beautiful, and so I need I need a rigorous a rigorous music to express all of that complexity and all that I'm feeling. Um, And not every piece can can do that, of course, in the classical genre, uh, every motion all at once. But I find in classical music the opportunity to be expressive and to communicate uh, nuances of emotion and nuances of thinking to people um, And whether whether they realize it or not, um, emotion is just pouring over them. And expressivity is just pouring over them, hopefully when I play.
0: Well, your playing's lovely, and and folks will get a chance to hear some more of that um, very soon. But uh, coming back to that, because you're speaking as a player, too, in, in your emotive world, and I think that complexity is is a part of classical music and sometimes people find that off-putting. They find yes. it challenging to enter into. When you think about all the styles we have today and in a complex world, some prefer their music to be very simple as, a, as an antidote to the complexity of the world. What for you would you make the case why classical music would be worth nurturing in someone who isn't a performer or isn't, isn't an expressive artist? What what is there that that we should why do we continue to nurture a music that had its time 100 200 years ago this music's quite old it had it was the reigning form of music in in the popular culture in Europe at least and and now we're in a very different world in a different time um, why why is the project of nurturing classical music worth doing
1: i think i think it's worth doing because um, people are are in need of experiencing something that resonates with the deepest parts of their soul and the deepest parts of their experience. Um, and, and, you know, within, within classical music, there is, there, there's so much. I mean, there's a simple, expressive um, character pieces that might focus on one emotion, at a time. And then you have complex pieces that experience a whole gamut of emotions and, and, and characters and, um, expressions. But I think, um, it's worth nurturing because people, um, it's for the sake of, of being a human being and cultivating what it means to be a human being. And, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing, um, and so classical music can unlock so many possibilities of finding out who you are, finding out uh, what makes you tick, finding out what it means to be a human being.
0: Interesting, and you and and I share a lot of those sentiments. It's someone may protest and say, well, the music I love gives me some of those feelings. When I listen to pop music, it makes me happy. Sure. But I think the idea that, and I love how you said this, that classical music creates a tapestry, a complex tapestry of emotional encounters within one work that is different than other forms, which tend to be more monolithic. They tend to treat uh, a sentiment, a song might treat an idea in a certain way. And, mm-hmm. and especially when you take words out of the equation and you're just dealing in the realm of pure music, pure sound, instead of having text on top of it, um, that there is a resonance that classical music can have with the complexity of the real world that mm-hmm. maybe other forms of music don't always have.
1: So we've got we've got a lot to, of work to do, huh, Gustav? As performers and composers of people that people that love this art form, we've got to bring it to people so that they can experience this incredible music and lift the layers of pretentiousness, of sort of making the audiences feel like another when they come and hear this incredible music. We've got to bring this music to people because the opportunity for them to discover a part of who they are as a human being, is it, it's just a massive opportunity.
0: That's a beautifully said. It actually segs right into the, I think it's a natural question that I would ask next, which we know this music has a particular char- set of characteristics, I think you've said it well, and yet, audience attendance for classical music, the heydays of a Glenn Gould or even of the 1950s when mm-hmm. uh, classical concerts could be very well attended and were seen as highly culturally relevant, that's less so. And especially in the US, uh, I don't know if maybe to a differing degree in Canada, but in the US, it, it's just not part of being culturally literate, except in, in some vague sense that it's something people used to do. Um, Why don't people wanna come out given that this music is very rich? It's very dense with humanity. And I love how you said that it can be a tool for an individual, an instrument to help them discover who they themselves are. Uh, It's very beautifully said. What what are the barriers we can tackle that may invite more people to have that experience?
1: Well, it's not price range because uh, there are ticket sales the average ticket sale for an Eagles football game, right now in Philadelphia, is three hundred and fifty dollars. That's the low end. That's the low end. So it's not like we're pricing out our audiences. You can go to the Philadelphia Orchestra for twenty bucks. It's amazing. And so, um, I mean, you have to find parking. Okay, that's another twenty dollars. It, it it's not pricing. It's not pricing. It's seeing, um, audiences don't see it as a relevant thing in their lives. And sorry to say it, but it's nobody's fault, but the classical music industry. And so we've got to create opportunities at a grassroots level to engage with people, everyday people, um, and grab them with this art form. Making it accessible um, in connecting their story with what we're performing. um, So that they see it as a relevant, meaningful art form for them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think we just need to, um, I'm a simple man, Gustav. (laughs) I come from simple roots. I, I I'm, I'm, I'm a country boy and we, uh, we need to go to folks that are, that, are curious about classical music and and provide clear pathways for them to engage with this incredible music and break down any kind of barrier that would hold them back from experiencing this incredible music.
0: I'd love to have you elaborate on those barriers. You've mentioned the the culture of classical music has been a barrier. What are some of the specific things behaviors or because I think you're right. Price isn't it. There's people will spend surprising amounts of money on all forms of entertainment and classical encounters are not expensive and often they're free. And I think that's its own problem yeah. Uh, yeah, because absolutely. the work that puts, it takes an incredible amount of work to perform and produce this music. So making it free is the wrong answer because I think it, it communicates that it, it, it communicates that it's somehow not costly to produce. It's immensely costly to produce this music. Uh, so, for me personally, giving it away is not the answer because money's not the obstacle. So, the obstacles you mentioned, the culture of classical music and pretension, which I, I share a lot of your points of view. And I had a prior guest who was the artistic director of the LA Chamber Orchestra. We talked at <laughs> some length about those problems as well. I'm curious, what are the specific things? that you see that you're doing perhaps even with your own concertizing to address those barriers and maybe a a sidebar talk a little bit about your students because I just in responding to your your comment I'm immediately drawn to the fact that you have a highly interested engaged population of young people coming to you as music students and the likelihood is most of them won't have a full-time career in music just because of the economics sure. but they will be full-time lovers of this music and mm-hmm. I'd love to know some ways you're engaging them because they're coming from every kind of possible background as well so just open it up to some of your thoughts on those things
1: yeah well um, I did I just finished um, a, a recital series that I was doing called entitled joy and imagination I played it for a variety of audiences, uh, both in the U S and Canada. Um, I did a beta test of this, uh, concert about a year ago in a, in a home, uh, in Yardley. And I asked folks, what do you want to hear at a classical music concert? The overwhelming Uh, response both at that house concert and throughout implementing uh, the beta test so to speak throughout the year was we want to hear stories about these pieces so I told a story of visiting the Chopin grave in Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris and I talk, talk about getting there late uh, my wife and I uh, are frantically looking for the the grave of Chopin and we get locked in the cemetery. And as soon as I, I say that, people are so captivated. They, they don't know who Chopin is, but they can picture themselves being locked in a cemetery. And I said, I passed the grave of Jim Morrison. And as soon as I said Jim Morrison, this man, uh, uh, he, he was probably late 60s, never been to a classical music concert. But as soon as I said Jim Morrison, in relationship to Chopin, I had him. Because he's a huge fan of The Doors. And so what I'm finding is, making personal connections with your audiences during the performance is so critical and it has to be, uh, winsome. It has to be engaging, um, maybe giving them something to think about while you're playing or to listen for while you're playing, to give them some kind of context so that they don't feel like an outsider. They feel like an insider. They, they feel a part of what's happening. Classical music, you have a stage, you have an audience and in the 19th century and into the 20th century, of course, we developed this sort of paradigm where you have the performer who is the expert. He's like the subject matter expert, uh, almost like a priest, uh of this art form and we dare not approach this holy space of the performer or of the composer or of the orchestra we are just spectators and i think our job now is to not have them just be spectators and feel like an outsider but bring them into the experience so that they that that experience is their own. And they're engaged with what's happening and creating while uh, I'm creating. Um, and in that unique kind of context that only classical music can can give, um, experience a part of their humanity that otherwise cannot be experienced.
0: It's interesting that you talk about the engagement of the audience a phrase that i've started to take to on that very idea because i've reflected on my own answers to the questions that i'm asking you and one of them is uh, this form of music really unlocked for me when i put the effort in to creatively listen and it's a term that i've started to use oh, And I, love I think that, that creative listening is every bit as much of the creative encounter, especially with this more sophisticated or more complicated art form. Other art forms, in some ways, especially popular forms, come to you like a Big Mac in a styrofoam box. It's salted perfectly to make you want more. It's commercial music. It's a it's a widget of commercial consumption. And that's not to say there's not a lot of craft. There is actually a, an yeah, enormous absolutely. amount of craft in that music. So it it's not to belittle those who create it or, or those who appreciate it, really. Uh, not my intent. But it is engineered with a certain goal in mind. Whereas classical music has a different goal, a different that's idea right. in mind. And I think you've said it so beautifully. It is juxtaposing a very complex emotional journey over, over however long the piece is and, and moving through lots of different layers. And some feel good and some don't feel good. And that's part of what it is, is why it's so reflective of, of real-life experience. And so as part of that, it unlocked for me when I put the attention, turning off other distractions, not treating yep. it like background noise, and creatively listen. And you touched on that, that, that I think the, the audience, the creativity of the listener is what completes the artistic moment. The composer creates beautiful. some instructions, the performer renders yeah. them, but the listener has to complete the process.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Absolutely. And um, I mean, with our students, the music students that are coming to us, Everybody's experiencing this, whether it's a a small private school like Cairn University or the Eastman School of Music. I've talked to faculty up there, University of Maryland, um, where I I went for a time. We're all experiencing sort of a a further distancing from sort of the, the, the classical canon of information. When I talk to students and, and I ask a student, who's Beethoven? Where was he born? When, uh, when was he born? When did he live? When did he work? Um, what are some pieces that he wrote? It is absolutely surprising that they don't know. And so if, if music students who are passionate about music, don't know anything about Beethoven, don't know who Liszt is, Chopin. I, I don't know anything about him either. If they don't know, then our audiences need to be connected with information, just basic information, um, and make them feel like they're um a part of that creative process as you've expressed. But they need they need almost a music appreciation experience. <laughs> we used to, you know, downplay it's classical musicians, you know, you downplay the music appreciation courses, mm-hmm. but that's almost what needs to happen in a classical performance because we need to reeducate a culture. We need to reeducate from the grassroots, um, in every opportunity that we get to connect with people because Otherwise, our audiences are going to continue to decline. They're going to continue to, um, to wane away. And, and we've got to do something. And we've got to do something quick.
0: It's, um, a phrase comes to mind as, as I hear you talk about the music students. And it is surprising, especially for us who are older and, and had a touchstone with, with still what post-war classical was in 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 our society and that's gone but the idea that what we have is is this pretty widespread cultural amnesia we're we're almost dealing with a culture that has forgotten what it was and has come from and you can't rely on it knowing that anymore so you're now encountering people for whom the distant past is uh whatever pop song nirvana put out in 1990 and that's right. that's, that's, that's that is the, the <laughs> event horizon of the distant past now and and anything past that would have been largely irrelevant um and not to be too glib about it but this idea of a cultural amnesia that is yeah. different it is it is qualitatively different than when we were students uh, so educating and students is one channel of that um, i had the pleasure of seeing a part of your joy and imagination you performed it here uh, where I live and and it was so delightful to watch you engage audiences with story not in a pedantic way not in a in a, in a purely um, didactic I'm going to teach you some information right uh, you had yeah. a piece called gargoyles and and you so beautifully mm. enchanted the audience with some imagery what are some other techniques you're using to tear that barrier down talk a bit more about those strategies
1: Yeah, so I uh, had the joy of playing the heroic Polonaise in this uh, particular uh, series uh, entitled uh, Joy and Imagination. Um, And I would say to the audience, do we have any children out in the audience? And, you know, they would sheepishly raise their hand. And I said, guys, you have to listen for the horses. You're going to hear the horses running uh, into battle halfway in the middle of the piece. So I want you to see if you can hear this. And I played the octave, the octave part. When I got to that part, I would look out and try to catch their eye. And I would inevitably get it, get a chuckle from the adults in the room and get a smile from from the kids in the room. Now, um, the elite classical folks might uh, have disdain for that particular approach, but I don't care (laughs) because. I got to uh have a moment with this new audience. A couple months ago, a couple months ago Gustav, you know, uh in the classical music world, everybody had this kind of moment of panic and moment of I can't believe this is happening where a famous violinist stopped in the middle of the, her performance and stared down somebody who didn't mute their cell phone. It happened that this lady was so embarrassed, she walked out of the the hall completely uh, emotional, ashamed. It was her first classical concert. And uh, the debates of what, what, uh, uh, what classical folks thought of that, it was just insane. You know, how dare she bring her cell phone into the, the audience and, and interrupt this great performance. And I thought, my goodness, if we're getting to that level where um, the superstar performer stops in the middle and and addresses shames a human being in the middle of a performance i'd rather look out into the audience and get giggles from kids rather than shaming somebody who first comes to a classical music concert will never come again because they've been culturally shamed they number one they she probably just didn't know what was going on mm-hmm. Can you imagine? I mean, it's just, it's incredible.
0: What a powerful story. And it really communicates succinctly the problems of classical music because yes. she knew in that moment she was an outsider and now forever will be. This music is closed to her. She's not yeah. welcome. How horrifying. Because when oh, you look absolutely. at the history, and this is a, an anecdote I've shared with some other guests, when you look at the, I think it was the the Fourth Symphony and uh, there was a piano concerto. Beethoven self-produced this huge concert. It was uh, this epic, long afternoon concert. And <laughs> it was just as frothy and rowdy as you can imagine. Kids were yep. strewn about the floor. All the movements were in broken up order. The pieces were in, oh, I'll do a little of this one, then we'll do some of the symphony. And yep. everything that would horrify those, those sneering mobs today, Beethoven yep. himself produced the concert where that was all happening. People yeah. were oddly enough simply being human, just as yep, Beethoven exactly. was human.
1: Exactly. I mean, you think about you think about our heritage in piano music in the in the nineteenth century, in the early twentieth century. Uh, performers would engage with people. You hear these early recordings of these great pianists improvising, cleansing the palate, so to speak, before they played the the big masterwork. You know. Uh, Liz changed the, the direction of the piano so you could see his profile. Mm-hmm. He was engaging with, he, he created the piano recital. He was engaging uh, with his audience and, and bringing them into this incredible experience in music. He was a showman.
0: He was a consummate showman. <laughs> Just as much a showman as any of the, the people who smashed guitars and run around the stage yeah. are today. Exact same. Yep. And the goal was to create something beautiful and transcendent, but it was never to leave humans outside of that experience. Absolutely. Yeah. A powerful story. Well, so you've done some of that in your concert. I love, I can picture you playing that uh, polonaise and looking out, and I can picture the, the glee on a child's face when they went from being an outsider, a confused mm-hmm. and, and unfamiliar you invited them inside in that moment when they had something to listen for, they got to be an insider. That's just so beautiful. So tell me more about some of the concerts you have coming up. Let's talk about the, the road ahead and we'll finish and we'll talk about the release that we're doing together yeah, uh, very absolutely. shortly. But uh, tell me more about some of your other concertizing first.
1: Yeah. So we've got um, a new program that we're working on right now. It's called sermons and dances. And it's uh, a series of pieces that um, that I think, you know, audiences will really enjoy, especially as they relate to story and they relate to certain pianistic aspects that I can communicate and relate uh, to folks. So, for example, one of the pieces is the Dante Sonata by List. Uh, So that's kind of the sermon uh, part of it, uh, of the program. Where you have a reaction, a piano reaction to the reading of Dante. And you hear all of that, all of the sort of scope of uh, the horrors that are represented in in a reading of Dante and the transcendent heavenly um, feelings that you experience when you read dante and i'll read a little bit of dante and 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 sort of express okay this is who dante was because i'm not sure i'm not sure everybody knows who dante is and and what he wrote and the significance that he is to western western culture Um, so that that'll be fun on the pianistic side the, the other sermon side where I can show pianistic elements really, really clearly is through, uh, uh, Radovara, who's a Finnish composer, uh, Radovara's fire sermon. So the title is very evocative, but more evocative are these tone clusters that you have by basically throwing your arms on the piano in the second movement. And it's a very engaging piece because if people haven't experienced that, um, they are they I've I've played it before and people literally jump out of their seat um, and it's it's such a fun, fun piece, accessible, lots of beautiful melodies and and uh, just just a lot of fun to play. And on the dance side, Gustav, I'm going to be playing some of your rags. Well, all of your rags. Uh, I don't know if you have more than three, but <laughs> I'm going to be playing three of your rags. And in uh, expressing uh, to the audience, you know, our relationship, the project and what ragtime means and what these particular pieces mean to you and, and, uh, and learning them. And of course uh, playing your toccata as well. Um, so that's, that's going to be a lot of fun for me because that's that's a very personal moment for me where I can um, share with people uh, what it means to me, what it means to me, mm-hmm. and then some defia, fantasia, bayetica, which is uh, uh, has elements of flamenco dancing in it, um, and I, I can uh, play little sections of that to help folks uh ground themselves through the the full listening of the piece and so they can hear different elements of flamenco dancing cante junto um so it'll be a lot of fun it'll be a lot of fun so those are just some of the pieces that I'll be playing in sermons and dances uh april 6th I'll, I'll be playing at the yamaha services uh, building uh, there's a hall there in new york uh and playing playing the new york debut of your rags and tacata So those are some of the performances that are coming up in in, uh, Sermons and Dances.
0: That just sounds great. I cannot wait to hear this recital because having seen your others, um, I know it's going to be rich and engaging. And uh, if if anybody in the listening audiences uh, would like to hear one of these, they can go to your website, benjaminhardingmusic.com, and perhaps even bring the recital to their own community. They can communicate with you and maybe there's some opportunities. Absolutely. To...
1: I, I, I love sharing music with audiences and I love sharing music with the non-establishment audiences or non-established audiences. I love sharing music with people that have never heard of Liszt or never heard of Chopin or never heard of classical music uh, uh, never been to a piano recital. I, I love sharing uh, this
0: music with folks, and in house concerts, you're open to house concerts as well. Absolutely, want to have love it house concerts. Um, great. Well, as before, we wrap up too. I, I do want to talk about what's coming up in just a couple of weeks after this airs on January 1st. The Gilded Age, an album of new music. Uh, that I have composed is coming out and I'm so honored that you have played my rags and to on that album. And, um, so uh, for listeners of this podcast, it's going to be available on all the digital outlets, but I can't encourage you strongly enough to get it just to listen to Benjamin's playing. It is so tasteful and charming and engaging and, we've talked in some other venues about the project, but I just want to give you a couple quick minutes to talk about your part of those recordings, anything you'd want to share with this audience. If they seek that music out and they download the album and they hear you're playing, what would you want them to hear from, from yourself directly about Mm -hmm. those, about your performances in there or the process?
1: Yeah. So um, it's been my honor, Gustav and joy to play these pieces um, when I was with you, um, uh, where you live, you know, last February, uh, we were driving in the car and you played me a MIDI file uh, of these rags and takata. And I was just immediately captivated by this music, personally. Um, and what I want folks to hear uh, in these pieces is what I heard when, the, when, I, when I heard them for the first time is this, uh, hope, this optimism, this American optimism that is in, uh, these rags, every single one of them. Uh, they, each rag, uh, communicates a different angle of the American experience. And, um, I became an American just four, four weeks ago. And so throughout this whole process, throughout this whole process, I'm learning these rags and, and really experiencing um, uh, what it means to be an American uh, in playing this music um, through a number of ways. Uh, with the ragtime, uh, of course, we had the player piano uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, player pianos were, uh, were sort of mechanical pianos that you put a, a roll of paper through them and they would play on their own, sort of like a ghost-like uh, experience. Well, I recorded these rags on a Yamaha DC-FX, which is a modern player piano, but that captures nuances, uh, every nuance. Every nuance that I would put into uh, the piano, uh, this device, this DCFX would capture. And so I sat down and recorded um, these rags using that technology, uh, filtered out some bad takes and had uh, an engineer come and sit with me for a couple of hours and record what I had previously recorded on this instrument, we've got video footage of this, and it, it, was, just, it was just a really neat, kind of full circle experience for the genre of ragtime. Uh, and so that was a lot of fun. In the teccata, uh I want people to experience how hard I worked. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard piece, Gustav. <laughs> I want people to be empathetic <laughs> to the fact that
0: that is a hard piece. It's, uh, I, my wife and I joke about this. I'll write a piece of music and and I think, oh, this, you know, I want to write it in a way so that it's still playable and I, I'm <laughs> constantly backing off the edge. And I think, ah, this is, you know, this is kind of moderately difficult. You know, it's moderately <laughs> advanced. And, and inevitably a player will say, no, 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 no. This is hard, <laughs> and I don't write it with that intent. And I, I always know. think, uh, I, I, I. Uh, you just played it beautifully, and folks are going to be dazzled by the by the performance you rendered. Um, and again, it's just so beautiful, so tastefully done in a way that, again, in a digital age we live, where things are so mechanized, and and some of the listeners could go and get Garage Band, and they could splice together and have a digitally perfect rendering of a thing and what I hope people hear in the playing of those pieces is Benjamin Harding himself your soul your how intimate that you are in your interpretation how beautiful uh, how beautifully tasteful you are in your decisions and and something that I think listeners of music it's easy when you put on a recording on an mp3 to forget the human being who put all those notes into yeah. the air for them to be recorded. And that's why I'm so grateful you've been with me today to talk about that, but also just your on artistic journey. I wanna wish you all the best of success with sermons and dances. And I wanna encourage everybody on this podcast, Benjamin, uh, having him in your home, if you have the right kind of piano, if you have a grand piano in space and to invite the community into your home or a local hall, uh, please seek him out. You will not be sorry that you did that. And uh, Benjamin will bring uh, some very powerful humanity. And, and I think we can all agree in our current time, uh, the more humanity, the better. Uh, we're, we're in a time where that seems to be in short supply. So I do want to encourage all my listeners to find him at BenjaminHardingMusic.com. And, uh, and if it's in your resources to do it, bring him to your community. Let him share his art with, with your friends and neighbors and you'll be enriched. Benjamin, thank you so much for being with me on the Anachronism Podcast, for being my dear friend all these years and for being my collaborator on the upcoming release. I'm so excited for people to hear you playing. And uh, again, best of luck with your, your concerts. Uh, I'll be looking forward to attending at least one, if not even hosting one. And uh, with that, Thank you.
1: Thank you, Gustav.
0: Take care. If you'd like to connect digitally, you can visit my website at gustavheuer.com or find me on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining.